Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS, here to give the now traditional, can we say traditional, it's the third week, I think, canine update. <laughs> Thea, we might talk about other things as well, matters <laughs> literary and political. Thea Lenarducci, have, have you got a new dog? Uh, not yet, but I have secured the dog. The dog is going to happen? The dog is going to happen. What's he, what's he or she called? Um, we think we're torn... We're Go on. So the options are... Um, it's difficult, though, because you've not seen him, so you don't I've know... I've seen a picture. I've not seen the picture. Is it the same oh, one? I have an updated picture, more okay. recent one. But anyway, so, so you, you, you can't vote... Yeah, but so he's he's either going to be called Alf... Alf, good. ...or Morris. So what we're thinking, we, we might have to, when he arrives, write the names on two different pieces of paper and see which one he knows is. That's, a, that's an oddly democratic <laughs> way of uh, fixing it. What, Democracy which do, is in my which heart. Do, which do you prefer? I like them both. Can when I was a child, I wanted a dog called Morris, That's but weird. he seems to me more like an elf. Can you imagine shouting it across a common? That's the test, isn't yeah. it? Morris, I think I could do either. Morris. I mean, if I do Morris, someone will just think I've lost my elderly uncle. Yeah, I think I think Alf. I think Alf. <laughs> I, uh, I was going to ask you as well. How do dogs bark in Italian? What, what's what's the word uh, for bow, bow bow bow? A lot like the the Taiwanese steamed bun. Bow. <laughs> Okay. It's weird, though, isn't it? Because we say woof, woof, bow, bow. Yeah. Same Do you animal. say bow, bow in English? No, woof, oh, woof. Oh, you don't. Okay, woof, woof. We'll bark, but no, not bow. Yeah. So do Italian dogs sound different, or do we just characterise the characterize Spanish the... say bow, bow I think well. they do. And the French have bow, bow, and also woof, woof, I think, There's which a whole... is a lot like woof, woof. There's a whole podcast in why <laughs> those words Yo, you say bow, Oh, you say bow, bow in Hindi as well. We say bow, wow, but no one says that. There's a kind of bow, wow. Oh, is a... that's confusing. Yeah. Anyway, get yourself subscribing to the TLS Google TLS subscriptions and join our ever-growing club. This week on the podcast, we dwell lingeringly on the food of what Laura Freeman calls the hungry novel, a genre in itself in post-war Britain when writers were starved of food and could only put it into their writing. Laura will be in the studio. Post-Brexit, we may be forced only to eat each other, of course. In our politics special issue, our resident moaning Sybil, James O'Brien, hungrily surveys the blasted scene. And Emmanuel Macron might scoff about Brexit. Indeed he does. But should he not look a bit closer to home if he wants to see evidence of a populist uprising and angst about poor government? Former Macron fan Sudhir Hazari Singh will be unsparing in his assessment.
One of the keys to Emmanuel Macron's appeal, said Sudeh Hazari Singh back in March 2017, is his appreciation and astute exploitation of the visceral collective contempt for the French political establishment. Sudeh was reviewing a book, Révolution by Macron, then a presidential hopeful, with only an outside chance of getting into the Élysée Palace. A few months later, Macron won the second round of the French election by a landslide. Then came victory at the legislative elections, further securing his mandate as president. His popularity soared. He has hardly put a foot wrong, said Sudeir at the time. But Macron really had given himself a lot to live up to. No wonder then that just 18 months or so into a projected five-year term, things started to come unstuck. The visceral collective contempt that had helped to carry Macron into office had turned. Revolution was now the word on the lips of protesters against him. And while the Gilets jaunes movement began as a protest against a fuel tax, which in fact Macron revoked in December, it has long since morphed into a more sweeping march against a government perceived to be looking after the rich, while the poor get poorer. In December, a poll conducted for Le Figaro newspaper suggested an approval rating of around 75% for the gilet jaune. <laughs> I couldn't help it. No. Uh, here, to discuss- <laughs> here to discuss what went wrong, what might yet be fixed or otherwise is Sudhir Hazari Singh. Uh, Sudhir, welcome back. Thank you. I hope you don't think me too cruel for quoting your words back to you, but I am I'm keen to know how you, who were once, it's fair to say, optimistic for what Macron could achieve. How, how do you see him now? No, we all deserve to have our words quoted back to us every now and then. Um, So take full responsibility. I mean, I think Macron had a fantastic opportunity in 2017 to kind of bring together what I called in that piece the optimistic and the pessimistic France. And what's just blown up in his face is are all the problems that he promised to resolve and has not yet done so. Was it too easy for him? I'm thinking of the French phrase faux de mieux, where ultimately he was against Le Pen sort of crazy fascist who's up against Melanchthon, who's a crazy communist. Uh, other of his rivals kind of fell away in a, in a welter of financial scandals and other scandals. And he was almost left the last man standing to get elected, wasn't he? Well, it was a perfect storm. But I think underlying it was precisely the fact that it was, an, it was essentially a negative election. It was an election against the party elites, against the technocracy Um, Already then, people were denouncing it and calling for something different. They were calling also for a different style of politics, Mm -hmm. and that's what Macron also promised to offer. What did did he promise? What what was the different style? The different style was meant to be one that was much closer to the people, much more interactive, Um, and it sounds extraordinary given the way that his presidency actually developed. Well, indeed. I mean, from from gauging the mood so well, how how has he now gauged it so wrong? Well, I think he fell into the trap that many presidents fall into, which is um, once they get into the Elysee, it's very easy to get boxed in, and he's become slightly trapped in the palace. And part of the problem, which I also bring out in the piece, is that normally one of the relays, one of the kind of messengers of what's happening in the country, is the president's party. And the party, for various reasons, hasn't been able to play that role. Even though he invented the party? Even though he invented the party. But one thing that's really important when one's thinking about French democracy is that uh, at the lower levels of the, of the spectra, of the rungs, Um, municipalities, for example, are still very important institutions. Mayors are now the most popular uh, elected representatives in France. Um, uh, But 
La République En Marche has no uh, representation in the municipalities. The next municipal elections are in 2020. So that's when En Marche is actually going to be able to connect with that lower level. And the mayors just blame everything bad is the fault of the state and everything good is to the credit of the mayors. Is that how, how politics works? That well, um, you have multiple office holding in France. So some mayors are also... Uh, uh, you know, represented at, at the higher levels. But yeah, I mean, they play this vital uh, role of intermediaries. Um, and given that Macron uh, actually very badly needed that connection with the lower levels, that's one of the things that contributed to him completely not um, sensing what was going on with, with the Gilets Jaunes and what the underlying reasons for the protests were. Well, I suppose he said from, from the get-go, didn't he, he, that he wanted to be a, a presidential president who didn't sort of get bogged down in, in the governing so much. He wanted to be Jupiter, as he called himself. And <laughs> Jupiter is fine. But what I think you also need in France is, um, is something that one might call emotional intelligence. You have to be able to feel um, what the popular pulse is. That's uh, true for any politics. I mean, mm. Is this a question of a personality failing? That One of the things that strikes me about Macron as we see him at some distance is the ego, the sort mm. of overweening ego, that moment when a child tried to call him Manu uh, right. and he said, don't call me Manu, call me President Macron. <laughs> and it just seems to, he seems to be pompous where actually when he, he was young and thrusting and kind of cool and relevant as he campaigned and he's, he's ended up running his office in a completely different tone. Well, I think, I mean, I think that is absolutely right. But I think this is where one of the other missing elements in his background is really important. Every, almost every politician that's made it to the presidency has held elected office before. Mm. And if you are democratically elected to something, whether it's mayor, uh, regional councillor, deputy, um, you know, you, you get that sense of how to interact with ordinary people. And, and it, 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 it brings you a touch of humility as well, because, mm. you know, people, um, especially in France, take you down a peg if you try and strut, strut around too arrogantly. That's why I quoted Chirac, because yeah. Chirac, I think, is really a wonderful example of that. And Macron just didn't have that background at all. So and what was Chirac so good at? He was he'd go and eat with people, and he'd go and eat with people. He'd go and kiss babies. He'd spend a whole day uh, in 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 the provinces and this out in the sticks, and he genuinely enjoyed it. Mm. Um, I mean, that's that's what I would do if I were the president. <laughs> go around sampling <laughs> yeah, the cheeses. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> you would do better than Macron. I feel if, <laughs> simply possibly, if you can, I mean, if possibly. you just stuck to cheese. <laughs> well, th there is this strange uh, uh, parallel with Sarkozy, who also uh, never ate very much and didn't drink. Mm, too busy so, jogging. Too busy jogging and eating chocolate. And so, you know, <laughs> if, if you're a French president and you don't like food. Yeah, you need to live the French way, of course. But also there's this split. Is there not this split in France, which we, you've talked about, I, I think, before, which is between the cities and the towns and, and the villages. And I think the majority of French people don't live in cities, do they? They live in, in, in small towns or even smaller villages. And there is a big difference between the metropolitan group and the non-metropolitan group. And if Macron's not ever visiting the non-metropolitan group, he's going to really be removed from reality. Not exactly. He's not, not only is he not visiting them, but his party is not actually representing them either. When you look at the sociological makeup of the En Marche electorate, it's mostly people living in larger towns and cities, um, whereas the people who um, are represented in the Gilets Jaunes marches are, you know, 
um, employees, artisans, small farmers, um, just a completely different world. Uh, and in fact, a world that is not represented by anyone um, in, the, in the political system, right? The left, Mélenchon doesn't speak for them either. If any party speaks for some of them, unfortunately, it's the National Front. And Mélenchon did a, had quite a strange uh, reaction, I think a couple of weeks ago, didn't he? Because he sort of seemed to praise the Gilets Jaunes, he, the, the leader of the, is it Eric Drouet or something like that? He was, yes, he was, was one of them, taken exactly. into custody, custody and Mélenchon sort of said, compared him to a revolutionary from, you know, from the revolution. Exactly. Um, which seems very risky. Well, every, all the political... Also, I suppose not politically, actually, because they have such great support. Yes. Well, all the political, and in fact the intellectual elites, have been slightly flummoxed by mm. the Gilets jaunes because there's something in what they're saying that connects with what each of them stands for and represents. But none of them can, can represent the, the totality of what the Gilets jaunes are, are speaking for. And what are they speaking for? Because it started out, as you say, as a protest against the fuel tax, it's the sort of punitive behaviour towards diesel. Was that right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, but it's more than that. Now, a, is it now a, a sort of cry against the elites that you, we perhaps see in all sorts of other places, not least not least Britain? It's, it's two connected things. One is just this feeling of not being represented. There's a huge kind of crisis, what, what the French call une crise de représentation. I mean, they've been talking about it for a while, but now it's become really acute. I saw this fascinating poll. People were asked, which institutions do you trust? Um, the, the, the institution that they most trust is their municipality, right? Mm -hmm. About 60% of people, they put that on top. The political party is bottom at 9%. People trust banks more than they trust their wow. own political parties. That's saying French banks, so that's saying <laughs> something. <laughs> um, that's one thing. Um, the other thing, this is about technocratic governance, right? It's having people that, sure, you elect, but once you put them in office, they only um, uh, make decisions on the basis of these very abstract um, general formula that people don't feel connect to their real lives. So that's what all this is also about. Mm. And so what, what is, um, what's Macron doing to mitigate this? Well, he's got the grand débat. So the French are talking. They're talking to each other. They're talking to Macron. Um, Macron is having to get out of the Elysee and confront um, some of these gatherings. He, he did one yesterday in the suburbs. Uh, and some of the conversations, as you can imagine, are, are quite heated. And is he good at it? What we're starting to see again is the Macron of the election campaign. Yeah. So it's coming out. It, it, he's remembering um, that, that this needs to be a kind of key part of how he, how he governs. The problem is what's going to come out of a huge conversation like this, you know, where, um, you know, there'll probably be 750,000 documents sent to the government, right? Um, uh, 4,000 meetings. Um, and this isn't actually a very good way to govern, arguably, is it? Because in a way, you need to entrust people to make straightforward decisions. You can't simply say, as we learned in our own referendum, if you just put everything to the public, nothing ever gets done. Yes, there needs to be... This needs to be seen as more than just a one-off, right? So in order to correct this view that the French are too technocratic, they're having a grand débat. But, it's, but A, how do you aggregate all that information and how do you turn it into policy? That, that'll be one difficulty. But also, if you just do it the once and then go back to business as usual, that's not going to solve anything either. So it's not very easy. And meanwhile, he's still a centre-right economic politician, isn't he, in a country that's probably, in the way lots of countries are, inclining more to centre-left economic policies. And that's not going to change by talking to people 
everywhere. He still has a philosophy that he's going to stick to, doesn't he? Well, he can. Rem- he, he might try and remember some of the things that he said during the campaign, which also included um, redistribution, social justice. Th- there is a progressive agenda that was meant to be part of Macronism, but he's just left it behind for sort of supply-side economics and trickle-down. You can do trickle-down if you have, uh, you know, Chinese growth rates, right? Yeah. If you have a kind of massively expanding economy. It's a funny time to be doing it now when it's been kind of discredited in the modern age. Well, yes, exactly. And, um, and especially if you've promised that you're not going to stick just to that. So hence the kind of tag of President des Riches, because mm. he just seems to be giving um, uh, all these uh, tax cuts to... To the wealthy and hoping that that'll encourage them to invest and 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 create jobs. But if you look at the the level of unemployment, it's still pretty much around stuck around nine percent. So which is high, which is high, right? A lot higher than Britain, for for example. Higher than Britain, not as high as some some of the other Mediterranean countries. But you know, one of the reasons why Hollande couldn't even stand for re-election was because he just couldn't get that needle to move at all. Macron's been here now for a year and a half, and nothing has happened either. Mm. So what's the future? Because presumably the next election, does Le Pen return? I mean, what is France looking at? Because she was defeated, and there's a lot of crowing by liberal people saying, oh, you know, the fascist right has been rebuffed but actually the fascist right did pretty well. It, a third. It, yeah, a third you, know, a third. It, you know, it took it to it took it to the mm. runoff. Does does she come back? Does the the National Front come back? emboldened it particularly if this doesn't get better because after five years of not moving the needle then there'll be a cry for change anyway won't there Mm. where do the young urban employed educated where do they vote well in a perverse kind of way this is what macron is perhaps banking on because he knows that in their heart of hearts the french will never elect a national front president so all he needs to do is come second on the first round of the next presidential election then everybody else, um, even if they even if they do so very reluctantly, will say, "Okay, we'll we'll vote for him again." Same thing <laughs> that a happened. Very dangerous game of calling. Same thing that bluff. happened with Chirac in two thousand and two, right? Almost no one wanted to see Chirac re-elected, but given that the person he was facing off was Jean-Marie Le Pen. But it's an interesting point that Corbyn. I mean, and maybe Corbyn's star is starting to wane a bit in this country, not least because he can't come up with anything on, on Brexit that will appeal to enough people in his party. But Mélenchon, presumably, there is an argument that there will be educated, liberal, centrist, centre-left people who feel they've nowhere else to go. And arguably that happened in our election in 2017. A bunch of people who aren't really fellow travellers of Corbyn saw Tories versus Corbyn. Corbyn deliberately pitched it pretty centrist-ish in the manifesto and so they could go along with him. Is there any chance that that could happen in France, that someone from the left or even from the far-ish left, would just pull it back enough to attract that that educated... Mélenchon might. Um, I mean, he has charisma. He's a very impressive politician. Um, He has that emotional intelligence that Macron doesn't have. Um, One one of the difficulties, though, is that he will have to um, federate um, the different components of the left, which are just completely fragmented now. I mean, I've not seen the left in such a state of intellectual and organisational disarray, probably since the early days of the Fifth Republic. So it's going to be really difficult. So um, he, he might just, Macron might end up being just, again, 
the person who's faux de mieux, there's no one better. Yes, winning by default. Um, and perversely, as I was saying, around him there are a lot of his own advisors were saying, this is probably your best bet. Because if you try and do too much, um, uh, it'll look like you, you know, you'll be overreaching again. So your, your, be- your, your, your safest strategy is just to hold out for um, ending up in a, in a runoff against Marine Le Pen or, or Mélenchon, which is not a, not a kind of... It's not inspiring, is it? <laughs> no. I mean, but maybe and about three years away as well, isn't it? Yes, and a lot, and of course, a lot can happen between mm. now and and the next presidential election. Well, I'm looking forward to the fact that maybe on an almost annual basis, Sudi, you can come <laughs> back here, <laughs> and and we can we can judge where Mac- Macron is because it's, you know, like you say three more years, and then it'll be put to the test again. Well, at least he's in a better position than Mrs. May. <laughs> it's not, it's not <laughs> setting the bar very no. high. No, and, and, um, he does do that. He does criticise Brexit legitimately. But then that, that does make us gnash our teeth as well when we look at, you know, Paris on fire, gilets jaunes everywhere, and, and maybe he's not doing things an awful lot better himself. No, no, that's true. So De Hazard saying thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. It is more than two and a half years since Brexit, an event that appears to have broken Parliament, the party system, the media and our collective sanity. The referendum, of course, was, if nothing else, a punt by a chancer. David Cameron's insouciant gamble that his luck from the election and the Scottish referendum would hold, Remain would win and everybody would shut up about the EU for a while. Boy, was he wrong. So now where are we? Well, as part of our occasional attempt to further inflame James O'Brien, commentator, LBC broadcaster, best-selling author and palm applied to facer, we've asked him to try and put it all in writing. And now come on this podcast to explain it a bit more. James, hello. Hello. Last week, we saw Theresa May heralded as a victor for winning a vote on an amendment that undid her own commitment to a backstop and brought us closer to no deal. Then Parliament voted against no deal, but in a way that was completely meaningless. And so this is, this yeah. is I, mean, I laugh at it and it's funny at one level, but there's a serious question here is, has Brexit broken the system of politics, the parliamentary system primarily? I, I think it I clearly has, yes. I, I, I mean, for a whole heap of reasons. And I wonder if Brexit hadn't come along, whether something else would have done. Because I think it's the entrenchment of the two-party tribalism that snapped. You, you suddenly realise as someone who perhaps leans, leans to the left economically, that you're, you're, you're closer socially to a Ken Clark or an Anna Soubry than you are to a, to a, uh, you know, a John McDonnell or, or, or a Jeremy Corbyn. But specifically to Brexit, I, I think it is denial on, a, on an industrial scale, but also the irre- irreconcilability of all the promises that were made on the Leave side, which the, the, the constant pointing out by Remainers like me doesn't actually move the needle at all. It is, it is a, a, you know, a rock and a hard place. If you voted for something like Norway and you live over the road from someone who voted pretty much exclusively on immigration, there was never any prospect whatsoever of you both receiving what you requested. And that, that's why all the talk of the will of the people and these ludicrous, fatuous slogans that are still out there. Yeah, they still are. If anything, getting amplified. They, 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 they just lead inevitably to this bizarre mixture of disaster and stagnation. Which is why I suppose there's this, this constant striving for vagueness, isn't there? I mean, as soon as things start to be pinned exactly down right. by detail, a new amendment is rushed in to throw a veil over it all and get us back to that kind of safe space where we can imagine that all is possible and all will be well. <laughs> 
which which kind of you could roll with two years ago, arguably even one year ago, possibly even two months ago. But with two months to go, that um, observation, I, I think, is probably best described as the minute you write it down, it falls apart. And, mm. and that's what Theresa May discovered at Chequers. And then she discovered it in the, the original vote. And then the... Oh, the, the, the astonishing, as you just so articulately described it, this astonishing situation in which they spent two and a half years negotiating a position on which 27 other sovereign governments have managed to reach agreement, and Theresa May can't even get her own government to agree to it. So within a fortnight of putting it in front of Parliament, she ends up whipping her party to vote against the only deal she's managed to get out of these torturous negotiations on the ERG-flavoured promise that there is something better out there. We just can't tell you what it is yet. And Jeremy Corbyn's no different. He's got a brilliant plan, but it goes to a different school. Well, that's the, and that's the point I think that, that's interesting here, that what's Labour's role in all of this? Because, um, you know, both sides are negligent and, and, and almost criminally negligent in the sense that if you, you know, you'd expect both of them to be able to put together a plan that was deliverable, right or wrong. It at least had some meaning. And of course, Corbyn's electorate. And there was a piece in the eye by a guy, guy who said Corbyn's right to keep out of Brexit because it's a vote, yeah. vote loser. He should be only doing about things that people care about, like education, as if Brexit sort of subsists in this vacuum that you can just escape. And n- neither side is willing to ultimately risk their electoral ability in the, on this, are they? I don't, that's that's a charitable reading of it, and, and probably the accurate one. It, it also has something to do with the. And I'm a bit of a, an addict to blaming the right wing media for almost everything. But if you look at how the country was gaslit and groomed in the immediate aftermath of the result, that the elephant in the room for everybody was that there is no so-called deal available that is demonstrably and materially better than being in. And so unless Corbyn comes out and says that, which oddly I think he's even further away from believing, not believing, acknowledging, admitting than Theresa May is, then then they were always going to be a curious mixture of bystander and facilitator. But but the longer it gets on, the more the more utterly befuddling the whole thing becomes. And and then I don't know if you've seen this video that's emerged yeah. in the last couple of days of, of Jeremy Corbyn addressing an Irish anti-Lisbon treaty meeting in which he essentially employed language that that, um, that Nigel Farage would be proud of. Well, indeed, Nigel Farage retweeted the, uh, the, 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 vid- fellow, the, vid- yes, the video exactly. footage. So, so there it? you have it. It's, it's there on one side and um, people have to decide whether they're on the same side as Farage and Corbyn or on, on the other side. And given how divisive both characters are, it's it's an astonishing... It's almost like the distillation of Brexit, isn't it? In the, It was supposed to be polarised and binary, left versus right, all of these things. And then it turns out that the, 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 the two politicians who are arguably on the tips... The two tips of the horseshoe of, of British politics have ended up a lot closer to each other than the massive the massive rump of, of the electorate. We talked about Ireland last week on our a podcast with the historian Did called you? Dermot Ferreter. And in fact, one of the things I'm we, keen to do is because Ireland has been so scandalously undercovered oh, in this whole oh, debate. unbelievable. Um, he, said, he said on the day of Brexit and then now two and a half years later, Brexit brings the United Ireland closer. Do you, do you agree? And you said something very I striking, do. which I, I saw, which that you kind of... It makes you feel more sympathetic towards Scottish nationalism, or indeed any form of, uh, of of that type of nationalism. This whole process sort of pushes you in that direction. It, it was a combination of things, it, it, as you say. It's the way that we've utterly ignored 
the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, it, it, not just in the context of Brexit, but, you know, uh, since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, it's as if we've barely given them a second thought. The stasis at Stormont over the last few years yeah. has been... Hey, political anorak should have been all over it, but, but uh, you know, none of them went near it. So the, the line about Scotland, for me, is, is, is about the sense that they are looked upon as second-class citizens. They are They are dislocated deliberately from... Westminster and while I as a British person enjoy the fact that that includes Scotland when I go to Scotland I feel odd, odd though it may sound I, I, I feel at home I feel it is my country I now completely understand as someone who desperately hoped that the Scottish referendum would go the way that it did go I completely understand now the nationalist sentiment that, that I think <laughs> there's something you don't hear very often on TLS podcasts. So I, I think that the proclaimers put it best when they said <laughs> I, I don't understand why we let someone else rule our, la- what, rule our land cap in hand I, I won't sing it no, <laughs> we, we, the proclaimers is quoted more often than you might think at the very glad to hear it at the TLS um, I want to talk about Project Fear because we've, we the mm. cover of the TLS this week uh, which you're on is, is um, fear and political trembling and it's a picture of a yeah, person strong. very anxious and it's yes. about and there's a big piece we've got on project on fear and how fear is the motivating um, force in our political lives um, and of course Project Fear has backfired because now you can't warn about anything without being accused of yeah. being party to it how, how damaging is that situation and how bad is it realistic to say that's going to get do you think well, it's Trumpian, isn't it? This, this Project Fear has turned into fake news. So, yeah. oddly, it gives a free pass to the people who are peddling lies and exaggerations to accuse the other side of somehow being being part of the same problem. It's the, it's the United Kingdom's equivalent of still chanting lock her up at a Trump rally as the actual key members of his campaign team and inner circle are actually locked up. It's a, an astonishing exercise in ludicrous equivalence. But the... Um, yeah, I mean, the... the the grounds for genuine fear, I, I, I increasingly think, are probably firmer than we realise. This this ERG-driven drive towards a Patrick Mimford dream of, of no import tariffs at all, and under his own reading, the destruction of industry and agriculture. So he's the economist, just so people country. don't know, he's the economist, he's the pretty much the only economist, one of the very few economists that is sort of is yeah. pro-no-deal Brexit. And the idea that he would say is that if we come out, we drop tariffs on everything, because you have yes. to, because if you drop it for one, you have got to drop it for other people. Well, they, well you have no choice, of course. It's, it's, it's um, uh, you know, most favoured nation or third country, whatever the correct nomenclature is. If you drop it for the EU or you drop it for Singh for... I don't know, India, then you have to, under WTO rules, drop it for everybody. I interviewed Reese Mogg the other day. I kind of got him on the show under slightly false pretenses because he didn't realise it was going to be me on the other end of the I wonder, line. I wonder why he said yes to that. It seemed an extraordinary yes. uh, thing to agree to. Well, he was wandering to. around Parliament Green at about quarter to one, and I, I don't think he did his maths correctly. And he, and he came on and we got him. We actually got him to essentially describe this post-Brexit uh, schedule, which would see... And it, you know, think about it. If you're importing stuff into this country, whether it's you know cheap shoes for peasants, as he'd probably put it, or whether it's hormone-injected beef from Australia, as he did put it, that puts out of business almost overnight the massive majority of people currently operating within the world's largest single market and abiding by the regulations and, and, and the health and safety standards. So you'll be able to buy stuff that's dangerous. You'll be able to buy food that's less safe than the food we currently have now, which means the people manufacturing or producing the food that abides by standards set over 40 years of painstaking expertise and negotiation, they, they go to the wall. But I, it was so emblematic of Brexit. Do you remember that um, 
Was it Yanni or Laurel, that bit of audio that some professor put out and half the world heard uh, yeah. the word Yanni and the other <laughs> yeah. half heard the word Laurel? I, I came off the back of that interview thinking, finally, we've got him to admit that um, this is going to destroy agriculture and industry. So surely even not the most died in the wall levers are going to recognize that they've been sold apart. But people who are marching around using the phrase WTO without having the first idea what it means, surely they're going to wake up and realize they don't want to be on a on a on a bandwagon that leads towards the admitted destruction of agriculture and industry but i suppose i was being a little bit naive because everybody heard what they want to hear and for everybody who thought that um reason had finally been pushed into a corner where he had to admit the truth there were there was someone else um, reckoning that he'd, uh, I believe the phrase is, owned me. I must admit that I did uh, I did read the comments <laughs> for quite a while yes. on, on, on that. Uh, you and didn't it read was... YouTube comments, did you? Uh, no, no, they were on never, Twitter. I never, think never go near Just YouTube. <laughs> our, home, our homegrown ones are bad enough, but, but it, is, it, is, it is literally the same thing being heard by two different people exactly. describing completely different experiences. Either you should be comfortable with the idea of agriculture and industry being destroyed and stand up and say so, as Minford does, and as Rees Mogg did on that one occasion, or you should be completely spooked by it. But you have this weird dualism. People who, who should and probably are deeply spooked by it are still denying that that's what's going to happen because they still can't get off the, the, the Brexit bus that but, they were tempted onto in the first place with all sorts of lies and promises. But they'll, they'll, they'll blame something. The other emblematic moment yes. I thought this week was, was the Nissan um, fact. The yes. Nissan say, we're not going to, to, to make this car here. And there are lots of reasons why. You know, the, the issues around diesel is a, is a Europe-wide thing. Yeah. There is all sorts of other problems around car manufacture. What it meant, and but clearly, and the CEO of Nissan said this, Brexit has an impact because they're trying it doesn't to... doesn't matter, though. But even him saying that... <laughs> doesn't matter. No, they just say, well, no, it's nothing to do with Brexit. And so half the nothing, people say it's nothing, nothing to do with Brexit, to do with Brexit. <laughs> and then half the people say it's all to do with Brexit. And then no I disagree one... with you there, Stig. I didn't encounter anybody who said it was all to do with Brexit. Really? The only, the only places in which I heard it being described as everything to do with Brexit were, were the fictional Remainers being... I think this is what a straw man is. It's yeah. another one of those phrases that I've not properly understood despite it entering into the conversational mainstream. I, That's I, exactly I think right. that what they did was posit the existence of Remainers who were saying it was all all to do with Brexit, which I didn't encounter anybody doing. Everybody sensible acknowledges that it was a combination of things, including Brexit, but a, but a very, I'm afraid, still a large number of so-called leavers don't get to be described as sensible anymore. So they're describing things that aren't there because it suits their persecution complex. In the foreign media, at least, um, looking at oh, uh, yes. La Repubblica uh, this morning, and I was kind of going back through their coverage of Brexit, and they do they do suggest that this Nissan thing is a direct result of, of Brexit. Um, so it's interesting to see that that's happening over it, there. It might that's be, how I, they frame it. it. I think you could say that it, it, if Brexit wasn't happening, that would not have happened in mm. the way that it has mm -hmm. happened. Whether or not there'd have been some remoulding of future plans, rethinking of future investment. But the combination of us leaving the European Union and Japan signing a free trade agreement oh, with yeah. the European no, Union the to argue that it's got nothing to that's do with Brexit is, is, no. is just bonkers. Of but course. That, that's where we are now. The same with the foreign media after that vote, you know, after the... Uh, after the Brady Amendment went through and, and I, I, British newspapers, I say this in my piece, British newspapers were greeting it as a, as a victory for Theresa May and the rest of the world was, was looking on and going, you've just voted against the thing that you told Parliament was the only available deal two weeks ago. How, on what possible planet is that a victory? And, and the answer is, 
Planet Brexit when viewed through the through the lens of the British newspapers. There's a whole cottage. Unbelievable. There's a whole cottage industry actually of New York New York Times. I think just now there must be about in their weekly editorial meeting just say, have we had a another piece where we send an American to go wander around Britain and look puzzled? Yeah. Uh, just, just just scratching their chin. Yeah. Yeah. Those are their diagrams right. it though. Is, it is a cottage industry. It is. It's extraordinary. <laughs> um, my biggest villain in all this remains Cameron, um, yeah. for the reason that I sort of implied a bit in my little introduction. Um, yes. Pick as a villain and a hero or heroine in, in all of this, James. I think for me the villain would be Gove, actually, still. Really? Um, not, not, not just because he's, he's sort of quit the field now. He should have achieved some sort of um, redemption by voting for the deal, but then Boris Johnson voted against it. So the two chairmen now, the Vote Leave campaign, are voting differently on delivering the will of the people without anybody asking which, which people precisely it is. So Gove brought a... Everyone knows that, that Johnson's a charlatan. Everybody who cares about such things knows exactly what Farage is. You, 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 you knew what these men were, what they represented. When Gove nailed his colours to their mast, you sort of thought, well, maybe there is something a little bit more, apart from teachers, I, I imagine, but everybody else might have thought maybe there is something a little bit more substantive and or respectable about this because because Gove's not stupid so he he for me after Cameron Cameron is obviously top of the tree but he for me is is going to be the villain and and I think in terms of heroes you, you've got to look at the Tories who are risking deselection and death threats which as you both know is no hyperbole because they are doing what they think is right so I won't embarrass anybody by mentioning names i mean the sort of heroes i'm thinking of would be an anna subri most obviously but but i spoke to a conservative recently whose seat is a very very high leave seat and he knows that it's very bad for them but he genuinely doesn't know what to do because you know i don't think you need to be incredibly egotistical or vain to think that you're you're a good mp and he, and and that you do a good job by your constituents and you can't do that if you're not in parliament anymore but at this point in your parliamentary career the only thing you can do to stand by your principles is is somehow to to um undertake a series of events that see you lose your seat either either at a, an election or or via de deselection so i i have sympathy for people in the Tory ranks who aren't being heroic, uh, but for me, the, the, the heroes would have to be, and, I, and I'd, I'd go for an Anna Subri. Or I'll tell you another question. It really frustrates me that after so long, we can still come up with questions we should have been asking two years ago. I, I say, what's in it for them? So then I look at the celebrity remainers and the, the, the way that Gary Lineker puts his head above the parapet and gets absolutely coated from all sorts of very nasty gets, places. Yeah, what's but he also gets... He also gets J.K. Um, Rowling? What's in it for Gina Miller? The people who don't seem to have any personal benefit to accrue from pursuing the position that they're pursuing should all be heroes. I really. agree. I agree with that, James. However, they also get lionised. Um, perhaps That's in, not pa why they're doing Perhaps it. in equal measure. But I mean, if they, if they get criticised... J.K. Rowling was doing pretty well when it came to international <laughs> admiration before she stuck her neck out on Brexit, mate, surely. And, J and Lineker, you know, he won a golden boot. He doesn't need the lionising of the remaining classes. <laughs> well, they're doing it out of sincerity. Well, yeah, but I by that, by that argument, James, neither one of them would be on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if they were just happened to, 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 to rest on their great successes in their former industries, they would be no longer on Twitter. Twitter uh, offering opinion. I mean, they must. I mean, you're right. I'm not. I'm not denying that the the, the level of abuse can never be um, sure. right. But, what, but what the question is, what is in it for them? And if the answer is is praise on Twitter, then you know, compared to disaster capitalism or, or, or the fame and fortune 
that some sort of inadequate who's not an international footballer or the world's most successful author, they've managed to achieve fame and fortune that they, they that in a truly meritocratic society, they never would have gone right, there. Then, right. then, then for me, that, and Gina Miller, what's in it for Gina Miller? Yeah, these, well, these, yeah. these people are heroes. Yeah, you know? I mean, they've not even got a book out of it like you have, Jen. <laughs> but this was awful. You're very rude. But yeah. I did a literary thing recently and I had to say, as I was working up this brilliant new theory of mine, I just asked what's in it for them. I had to acknowledge that it doesn't actually work for me because... <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the New York Times. I think I've been profiled by the New York Times on Sunday. If you told me three years ago that, that my lowly little radio phone-in show was going to lead to that sort of international recognition, I would have laughed in your face. But as I, as I told the New York Times, I'd happily swap it all, all of it, just to go back to, to where we were as a country three years ago. God bless you for that. We, the TLS was profiled in the New York Times a year ago, James. You're, you're, you're catching up. but, but This is it. Yeah, I know. You're quite right. You're not right. I, missed, I missed the call, so, yeah. Did you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, James, what a great pleasure it is uh, uh, to talk to you. Uh, We'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Cheers. He had a beautiful. Could you hear his garden? I mean, he's he's locked out. (laughs) He's locked out. He's waiting. He wouldn't like. Lovely touch. Yeah, he wouldn't like me for telling this. He's locked out. He's waiting for his wife to rescue him, and he's sitting in his garden. Was that beautiful bucolic touch? We're talking about a former, the former glories of this country, and we could hear. Yeah. The birds. Well, the birds seem to get particularly animated when we turned to Ireland. I thought reached a. A peak there. There you go. Well, that, that, and if that's the sort of political analyst a- analysis that people cut, turn to this podcast for, isn't it? <laughs> when we started talking about Ireland, the birds started tweeting. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A couple of years ago, Laura Freeman produced a book called The Reading Cure about how writing on the subject of food helped her deal with anorexia, helped her get her appetite back. And I interviewed her about it for Radio 4. And afterwards, we got talking about a certain type of novel that was full of hearty meals lovingly described and how they all seem to have been written about the middle of the last century. I was thinking of John Buchan, for example. Well, Laura's now written an essay on the hungry novels of post-war Britain, filled with characters who will, this is in her words, suffer the indignities of bully beef, spaghetti bits and powdered egg while dreaming of richer meat. She offers up hungry authors like Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene, Anthony Pohl and Muriel Spark. Of course, 
literature and food is Thea's great <laughs> sweet spot, isn't it? No, you work and cheese. On, and cheese. <laughs> Specifically. There's not enough cheese in this piece. We could have remedied that. Anyway, you can hear Laura, Laura's here in the studio now. Laura, hello. Hello. All right, well, you link hungry novels to rationing, which was 1940 to 1954. Is that, is, that, is that a good way of thinking about it, do you think, the rationing period? Yes, I mean, I think at its most intense until about 45, uh, and then it comes off a bit and then comes on in quite a kind of concentrated way, and then the worst of it's over in the 50s. But it doesn't really end properly till 54 when the last of the meat comes off the ration. So it's a long, long slog. Um, and who's the who's a prime example here? I mean, is it Evelyn War? Evelyn War kind of dominates this essay. Do you, do, you, do you see him as a good figure to, to think about this? I think he's quite a good jumping off point because he confesses in, in a preface to a later edition of Brideshead Revisited, which was published in 45. It, it was written at a time of um, present privation and threatening disaster. Um, and he likens the sort of thinness of the diet, the sort of soya bean uh, period of English literature, to um, the period of basic English, which was sort of a way of communicating using the fewest possible uh, words, syllables, you know, no rhetoric, no adjectives. Because people had no energy. Yeah. Well, I think it was also it was about military communications and being able to communicate overseas. And then, and, and what he saw that was affecting the prose, or the prose was a sort of necessary corrective to that. This was a moment where people could could get their richness in language and in food in in the text. Yes, and then he later feels a bit ashamed of his sort of kind of rather elaborate, uh, flamboyant language. Well, as, as you say, I mean, he judged his readership well, didn't yeah. didn't he? I mean, they were hungry too. Exactly. It kind of made me think of it, actually, because... Um, so my family in Liverpool, presume, I kind of like to imagine now that they were reading it and that's why my great-uncle is called Aloysius. Oh, really? <laughs> Do we get it struck them so much. Is Aloysius the teddy bear? No, he's not a teddy bear. Is he? Oh, yes, 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 he is. He's, 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 he's yes, Sebastian yeah. Flight's teddy bear. Yeah, oh, he is. So oh. Maybe not. Well, maybe yeah, well, still. Maybe they were struck by the food, and that made it. Shall, shall we hear about the food? Uh, the the <laughs> honey buns, anchovy toast, the Fuller's walnut cake. Pl- oh, oh, this here's a good example of a word I only ever read: plovers eggs. Plover. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it is plover. I, I get very worked. You know how you feel bad when you you mispronounce a word. And I read someone say something on Twitter, which really made me feel better. I'm going to share it now. Which is, if someone mispronounces a word, it simply means they first encountered it while reading, and that is nothing to be ashamed <laughs> of. So whenever I, which I do all the time, and at the TLS, it's quite you know everyone knows how to pronounce everything. That's not true. It, it is. It is. People at TLS pronounce Nabokov Nabokov. Well, that they, is true. Because they know okay, how to fine. pronounce it. My point is, I know. Plover's eggs, lobsters and Cointreau served by Sebastian in his rooms at Christchurch and for caviar, cream and hot butter on blinis with Rex Mottram in Paris. And it, you, you, I can I feel my mouth <laughs> well, I had actually a real problem with this essay. I'm usually quite good about word counts, and I overwrote by about 1,500 <laughs> words because there was so much, and it was also appetising that I had to sort of put put the piece on a diet and slim it down. But this is what you wrote your book about. This is this this genuine. And do you believe there is this sort of visceral connection when you're reading stuff that it is connecting to to your own sense of appetite? I think so. I mean, what I describe in the book is how reading things on the page um, helped me to. To, to eat things in, in real life. Um, it's sort of almost doing it at one remove, doing it vicariously. But I think what, what sort of set me off really thinking about the war is there's this extraordinary set of diaries by Veer Hodgson, who was an air raid warden um, in Notting Hill. And they're published by Persephone under the title Few Eggs and No Oranges. And despite the fact that she's writing in the middle of the Blitz, what she's principally obsessed with is whether you can get an orange, a potato, a turnip, an mm-hmm. onion. Um, and her diaries are just absolutely full of food. There's a wonderful one-liner in one entry, which is just margarine. Ugh! <laughs> um, and, and, and clearly, <laughs> sounds like my wife. <laughs> but there is that feeling that I think if you are a kind of 
you know, you're not a soldier, you're not working at the Ministry of Defence, you're just a civilian. How do you grapple with the idea of Hitler, Nazism, the fall of Europe? You can't. So what you focus on is the fact that you can't get, you know, tin pears in the shops. Mm. You you call the search for something sweet Mm. a national obsession. So do you find in this literature that it's not just stodge, like Mm. meals that fill you up? There's a sense of you don't get treats anymore. Well, I think that's the extraordinary thing about this country. It is a war in which um, 19 and a half million people worldwide died of hunger and malnutrition. And, and Britain actually pretty much kept itself fed, but the diet was you know, boring. Um, so Lord Britain did an extraordinary effort in, in making sure everybody did have bread, potatoes, marge, etc., etc. Um, but particularly out of the summer months and particularly when the sweet ration was, was reduced, you know, you couldn't get honey, you couldn't get chocolate, you couldn't get all these things. Um, and so I think you almost find this kind of, you know, fetishization of, of, of delicious sweet things in, in literature. Uh, you always try to find a way of like nodding to them in whatever way that you could. If there was nothing available, you'd still try to cobble something together that just suggested the sweet. Uh, oh, the sort of faux, the faux. Well, yeah, but even if you think about like Mary Douglas, who wrote all of that that amazing did all of that amazing work on kind of how food systems are codified in this country and so if you couldn't get a jam roly-poly with custard you could signify it it had to you had to have a sweet thing after yeah. a meal so you could just at least nod to it by having a jammy dodger which is the dry element with the bit of the wet yeah. in the middle and maybe a cup of tea but they had to be dry and wet yeah. and it was all just you had to make it work somehow Oh. Well, you get all these things that, you know, they're mock apricot tarts yeah. with no apricots in it. And, um, and 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 I think, you know, the role of jam becomes incredibly important. You know, someone like Barbara Pym writes about how, you know, not even love is as passionately longed for <laughs> as jam. You know, this is the kind of, you know, spinster spinster. Um, and there's a, there's a wonderful passage in, in Molly Panter Downs, who was the New Yorker's correspondent in, in England. She wrote a story called The Hunger of Miss Burton. And she remembers an affair with a German boy before the war. But what she principally remembers are all the puddings they shared together on these German walking holidays. Um, and she says, you know, the sex impulse has just completely died because I'm so hungry and there's just nothing to kind of awaken the senses. So there is a kind of sensuality point here that this was a time when when the senses were starved in all sorts of areas because people were separated it was dark a lot of the time because there were no lights so so, so food becomes almost a symbol of, of sensory deprivation more broadly I mean, it was so cold i mean you have to remember it was kind of you know very little coal available um you know every time a bomb went off the gas main would blow i mean there are these wonderful stories in in the newspapers of one of the gentlemen's clubs in st james losing its gas supply and all the kitchen boys taking great kind of haunches of beef down to the club down the road roasting them and taking them back to feed the members um, so people had to kind of, you know, go to extreme lengths to, to, to keep the home fires literally burning. I'm struck by, this is probably after the Second World War, the sort of the rise of the Mediterranean obsession, because people, I suspect one of the things that happened in, in the Second World War, I think my own granddad was in France, was in Africa, France and Italy. So he would have just be- become more aware of other foods that if you lived in the Midlands where I'm from, you never would have seen anything really other than the standard sort of national fare. So was there this rise post-war where it was still rational? People had a sense of what they weren't getting. You quote Elizabeth David, who said Britons treated things like olive oil and apricots as dirty words. So back to sort of the sex. This is clearly a sex thing. Incidentally. The more we're talking about this, this is just a, clearly a, a, a stand-in for sex. But there, there must have been a moment where people started to have their horizons 
broadened, even mm-hmm. though they couldn't get get the stuff. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth David writes about how even just putting these words on paper produced assuagement. You know, you, again, it's that thing of sort of doing it, doing it on the page if you can't do it in, in reality. Uh, and she'd had this remarkable time at the beginning of the war, which she went on a boat called the Evelyn Hope, and she sailed around the Mediterranean. At some point, you know, literally with kind of warships pursuing them. Um, and eventually, you know, they had to come back. And then she worked in Alexandria during the war, where she said, you know, the food was pretty good, actually. And it was so utterly depressing coming back to England, <laughs> where, where the, the famous thing she says is, you know, olive oil was available in a tiny little phial that you use for rubbing on babies' tummies. Yeah. And, um, um, and there's this lovely anecdote in in the memoirs of. He looks disgusted by that. <laughs> well, no, I mean my my nonna always talks about that. How when um my, my grandmother when she emigrated in the fifties from mm-hmm. Italy, it was nineteen fifty I think she emigrated from Italy to uh, Sheffield and then Manchester, and she still says it, olive oil was only available in the pharmacy, and she just looks kind of <laughs> she still is very very vivid in her memory that as a kind of a symbol of how dire things were. <laughs> and um, uh, Deborah Devonshire describes how when there were various. Uh, soldiers uh, stationed at Chatsworth she had um, one soldier who'd been overseas and had come back with a single lemon and they auctioned it for the Red Cross but actually all everybody wanted to all these soldiers who were barracked at Chatsworth wanted to come and have a sniff of this <laughs> famous lemon sniff but, the but, famous but it's interesting lemon. that even a duchess you know <laughs> is so deprived of, of, of wonderful colour and food and, and sweetness and sourness that, that she's kind of excited about one piece of fruit I don't want to bring this back to Brexit I'm really oh, no, not. Don't. No, I'm really not going to. Do it, but, we get, but this notion that is now becoming that we were fine in the war because mm. we could grow our own stuff is a, is a kind of a solution to the problem. We don't need we don't need these Mediterranean vegetables because we can grow our own potatoes. And actually, when you talk about what happened when you were really forced to live on what you could grow, particularly outside of the summer months, mm. it was a very reduced fare, wasn't it? This is the let them eat turnip. Um, it is, argument. but people are saying this quite seriously. Oh, we rely. Yeah. Too, I mean, this is probably true. We rely too much on foreign food being imported because it, you know there's all sorts of environmental problems with that, etc. But this re- makes you realise that when we did have to live in a certain way, it was a sense of privation was felt. Well, I think also what you really find when you read diaries and letters is how unbelievably hard work it is. You know, you know, having a small holding when you've never done it before. And, and Rosamond Lehman describes trying to kind of grow vegetables in the countryside. She had two small children. She was trying to write her own novels and short stories. And she said, everything, everything, you know, squeezes out my own work. Um, and I think there was a very, very bad winter. It must have been 45, 46. And she describes the Brussels sprouts coming in from the vegetable garden, looking like Victorian paperweights, kind of each sprout enclosed in ice. Um, oh, God. And actually, you know, you know, we I've just been walking around Borough Market. I was a bit early to come in and record. And you look at the incredible bounty there. I don't think we are equipped as a nation to go back to digging up our own no, back gardens. No, we panic when KFC runs out of chicken. I'm, I'm not sure we're really in, uh, able to deal with anything at all. And start, I, start importing tinned goods as well, like um, like we used to. Snook, that was imported yes. from South Africa. What's I think. snook? It's a fish that used to get oh, in tins. We used to eat that a lot during rationing times. And I think after the end of the war... The tins were relabeled to to say that it's actually cat food, but that's <laughs> that's oh what we were eating. Um, Laura, who's your favourite of the hungry novelists? Oh, it's quite a hard Who? question, actually. I, I I do love Barbara Pym because I think she's so funny. And and what's striking about Evelyn Moore, although he writes very well about food, he's not doing any of the hard labour. So his wife, Laura, um, he kept 27 chickens, which War used to joke produced two eggs a day and ate all the best food. Um, but interestingly, you know, someone like Barbara Pym, who actually is making things for herself, she does make her own jams, she is queuing for food. I think she writes about food with, with, with someone who really knows the whole system from the inside. Yeah. 
I want to just put briefly on guiltlessness because we talked about this when, when when we first started having this conversation because food now is so freighted with guilt because we have too much of it and if you eat a large meal you're eating too much you're eating more calories than you're going to burn in the day whereas this is, comes at a time where for very obvious reasons not least because of how active people were calorie counting would be would have been absurd because you're trying to get more calories in rather than fewer does that mean the pleasure is 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 unmixed if we want to look for a time when when food could be genuine i mean i think you probably enjoy food and talk about food with uh, in an unmixed fashion <laughs> thing but i don't i feel completely compromised by 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 food now is, is there something in that there's a kind of guiltlessness around food I, I think there's an element of that, and certainly from my own point of view, I've often found it quite helpful reading novels of this period because it's a reminder, you know, for someone who's had difficulties with eating, um, to be very grateful for what we do have um, and to take pleasure in it in a way that, that, that for a generation, it would, you know, just wasn't quite possible. Um, I wouldn't say these novels are completely guilt-free because in Muriel Sparks, The Girls of Tender Means... Slender. But precisely. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, these, these young, young women are trying very, very hard to keep their figures on a diet that is, you know, rich in steamed puddings and low on fruit and veg. And there's sort of, a, you know, competitiveness and ultimately, you know, being slim becomes a life or death um, situation in, in, in that particular Well, you actually, it's interesting you said to me that you were slightly drawn to male figures in this because men in this time were generally you know wandering around the the, the the fields burning calories and so if you wanted to look for guilt-free food it probably would female authors might still be compromised by, by certain judgments they're imposing on themselves but male male writers and characters weren't there's a writer called um john stuart collis who wrote a book called the worm forgives the plow about his time working the land in the second world war and he describes very early on just just never having known hunger like it you know actually doing a full day out in the fields hoeing plowing whatever it is he was doing and sort of almost the kind of insane hunger um and eating three cakes on the trot when they were available and and of course not a shred of guilt with it well and i should we should say the land girls there were plenty of women working yeah. the land extremely hard yeah. as well but the idea of um if you if you're active you don't mm. feel guilt in in, mm-hmm. in the same way comes across in these books i think in the books yes. i read you kind of sense that, that there's no there is no hangover there yeah i think particularly um in in the evelyn war the the sort of honor trilogy but one they get out of um barracks and training camps in england and they're there in north africa um they do these incredibly long marches in the heat and, and when they get to to base camp and they they get to eat you know that there's there's no question of stinting themselves they, they'd like marmite pasta yeah. I'm sure they'd you, like I, anything they could get. Have you heard about our this mild debate about Marmite? So Nigella has a recipe right. for pasta, butter and Marmite, which I've now had. Oh, yeah. Which is inspired by an Italian it recipe is. where you sort of drag the pasta through the, the cooked Loosely inspired. Oh, loosely, loosely inspired. Loosely inspired. <laughs> so we'll give it, we'll give it. But that. I've had it and it's really nice. But I mention it to Thea as an Italian. It just, it, it feels very impure. Well, there are just plenty of other things I would like to eat more well, than I, that. I like Marmite with gentleman's relish in double whammy of sort of oh really bitter taste. Is <laughs> gentleman's relish anchovies? <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> See, that would be more, I feel that would be more... Anchovy toast with your, with your eggs as well. Yes. That's excellent. Yes. <laughs> oh, hang on a second. So that's excellent. You're, you're proving that, but excellent. not my Marmite on pasta. It's completely different. It's nice. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Because it tastes buttery. Don't, and don't, no, it's nice. Do they do it don't at don't Padella? No, they, no, they don't do it anywhere. They don't do it anywhere. I do it at home and, and it's nice. It's all I'm... Try it. I will. Okay, okay. Laura Freeman, thank you very much <laughs> indeed. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Laura Freeman, James O'Brien and Sudhir Hazari Singh. Make sure you're subscribing to or otherwise buying this week's TLS. It's full of fascinating politics and much more. Next week, it's the poetry special. 
I'm not here, Thea. You're not. I'm communing with my prosaic soul elsewhere. <laughs> Thankfully, you and Lucy. Yep, it will be in good hands. Poetic. <laughs> good poetic hands. You're good hands. poetic people. Uh, so they'll be back <laughs> to talk about that. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.